I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. I remind you that on the back of your bulletin, there is an outline of my message with some spaces that need to be filled in. I want you to anticipate the invitation that I will extend at the end of my message. <clears throat> I'm going to invite those who wish to make or renew their personal commitment to Christ to come to the altar, this holy ground, and stand or kneel for a few moments in order to renew that commitment. And you can use the altar prayer that is printed at the bottom of my uh, outline of my message. Also, let me say this. This message that I'm about to present offers the plain gospel about as clearly as I know how to present it. And so, a few days ago when I was taking my morning prayer walk, the Lord suggested to me that, that maybe it might be a good idea to put a message, a copy of this message in the hands of some of you so that you could share it with people you love, uh, family, friends who may need to hear it. And so, uh, if you contact the church this week and give your email address, the church will email to you a copy of this message. Our scripture for the morning comes from two places. First, the book of Acts, chapter 2, and then from Romans. But the first is a part of the great Pentecost sermon that St. Peter preached uh, as the church was born. Acts 2, I'll begin reading verse 36. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, beginning with verse 8. But what does it say? And it here refers to the righteousness that is by faith. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray.
Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Like many of you, I have been a long time Atlanta Braves baseball fan. And this, even during the dismal years now, uh, even then, when it was hard, I was a faithful fan. I mean, I remember some nights when I would turn on the television set to, to watch the Braves play baseball, and some nights I really wish they would. <laughs> but now things are so different. Oh, they're doing so well and, and have a real shot at the World Series. For many years, uh, one of the great baseball personalities uh, was Harry Carey, the spokesman for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, he died some years ago. Uh, he was so much more than just a spokesman, really, for the team. He, he was a, an institution in the Windy City. And, and though Harry did not have a very good singing voice, uh, it was a unique treat to be at Wrigley Field, and in the seventh inning, hear Harry lead all those fans in a rousing rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Just a couple of years before he died, uh, Harry wrote a book entitled Holy Cow. And the, the source, the origin of that uh, title was the way he described a home run, typically. Anybody, anytime a player hit a long ball, Harry would say, it could be, it might be, it is, holy cow. In that book, Harry wrote this, I am not a religious man. I've made some mistakes in my life. Dutchie is my third wife, and I've paid a lot of alimony in my time. But I've always believed in Almighty God. I've always believed that if you live your life as a decent person, the umpire in the end will say, you did it right, end of quote. Harry's theology is probably the most popular one in all of America. That's what a lot of folks believe. Don't most people believe that if you affirm that there is a God and try to live a decent life, God will grade you on the curve and you'll slide on into heaven. Far be it from me to judge the eternal destiny of Harry or anybody else. But his theology is less than Christian. Even the devil believes that God exists and trembles because of it. And the Bible does not say that being decent is enough to please God. Let's invite the Bible to answer the, the all-important question, what is required of us in order to be absolutely confident? that we are saved and on the way to heaven. Our text today, the first part, Acts 2, verses 36 through 41, is the hard-hitting climax of that great sermon that Simon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, just a matter of weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead. And what a sermon it was. When he gave the invitation to commitment, 3,000 people came forward and were baptized. 
In verse 36, St. Peter combines a stinging indictment with a ringing affirmation. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Even as Peter glorifies Jesus as Lord and Messiah, he indicts his audience, saying, you were accomplices in his crucifixion. Now, like that audience back in the first century, all of us, you and me, we are sinners. We are born with a genetic flaw, a tragic heritage that stretches all back across the generations, all the way back to Adam and Eve. What are the symptoms of it? Well, it's awful hard to stay clear of sinful deeds. It's harder still to stay clear of sinful words. And it's even harder to stay clear of sinful thoughts. Why is that? Because in our natural condition, we are inclined to selfishness, sin, and rebellion against God. That's who we are. Satan uses five primary tools to defeat us. And he never comes up with any new ones because the old ones work. Five, money, sex, addictive substances, power, and pride. And Satan is so shrewd, he knows in which of those areas you're weak, and that's where he concentrates. Now, the secular humanists of America disagree with me completely. They believe that all people are naturally good, and they really believe that if a person is educated and properly nurtured, he or she will turn out to be absolutely beautiful in every way. But even that educated and nurtured person is a sinner. Now, if you send him to a doctor, he might be a healthier sinner. If you send him to a psychiatrist, he might be a better adjusted sinner. And if you send him to Harvard, he might be a better educated sinner. But a sinner he will be. Verse 37 tells us that the Holy Spirit brought Simon Peter's audience to conviction. I mean, nobody in that big audience said, wait a minute, Simon Peter, you accuse me of crucifying him. No, no, no. It was Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman soldiers. He was the high priest. Nobody, nobody said that. Instead, they admitted their sinfulness and simply asked, what must we do? Notice Simon Peter's reply in verse 38. He did not say, I'll tell you what to do. Try to behave yourself better. He did not say, be sure to tithe. That'll be the big thing. He did not say, attend temple worship more regularly. He did not say, give more money to the poor. Though all of those things are commendable, none will save your soul. First, said St. Peter, repent. And to repent means far more than just to say, I'm sorry. It means to decide to live differently, to turn 180 degrees and go in a different direction. Not only that, true repentance means to make amends for that sin if possible. When I was pastor of a former church, I was at home one evening, and I got a call from one of my members. I'm going to call him Brian. That was not his name. Brian called me from the airport. And I could tell from the tone of his voice, he was in trouble. Uh, he was desperate. And he said, Brother Bill, 
I am in deep, deep trouble. And this is a real emergency, and I need to get with you immediately, if possible. I said, well, come on to my house as soon as you can. <clears throat> I took him into the living room. And it's rarely you see a grown man cry. He was sobbing. He sat down, and finally, when he got himself under control, he said, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, I flew out to Milwaukee on a business trip. I checked into the hotel and didn't have anything to do that evening, so I figured I would stroll down to the hotel lounge and have a glass of wine. And he said, I discovered there that they had a live band and they were playing really great music and I loved to dance. And there was a young lady nearby at the bar and I could tell she was into the music too. So on an impulse, I asked if she'd like to dance. She said, yes, we danced two or three times. 30 minutes later, she was up in my hotel room and you know what happened next. And he said, Brother Bill, I don't know what in the world got hold of me. I don't care about that woman. I'm deeply in love with my wife. And he said, my wife and I have a very open relationship. We don't keep secrets. And the moment I walk in the front door and she looks at my face, she's going to know that something awful has happened. There's no way I can keep it a secret. But I'm afraid she'll leave me. And I desperately need her. I said, well, the first thing we got to do is clear this with God because the first one you offended against with the sin of adultery is God. So he knelt on his knees in my living room and said, oh God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I pronounced the words of Scripture. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then Brian got up off his knees and he said, Preacher, I got to go home and tell Joan the truth, and it's going to be agony. It's going to be awful in our house. But if I don't, there is no way under heaven that we have any chance of ever restoring what has been so precious, a relationship. Well, Brian was right. There was agony in that house. There was pain galore. But even greater than the agony and pain was their love for each other and God. And over the weeks that followed, they were able to work through forgiveness by her, rebuild trust, rebuild love. Today, they are a happy married couple. Now, Brian has made some promises he never goes to hotel lounges by himself. And he's promised to never dance with another woman other than his wife. Now that's what repentance looks like. It means to confess our sin, to go in a different direction, and to try to make amends for the sin if possible. Repentance is the first step toward being saved. The next step is to claim Jesus Christ by faith as one's personal Savior and Lord. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Even the devil believes that and trembles because of it. And it's not enough to agree with some of his teaching. Most all intelligent people do that. To be saved, one must claim Jesus Christ personally, by faith, 
as Savior and Lord. The crucial matter is to believe that when Jesus died on that cross, He didn't do it just for the world. He did it for you personally. He paid the penalty for your sin, providing the only way by which you could be freed from evil and prepared to spend eternity with God. My name, your name, are written on the cross. You've often heard it said that there's a God-shaped hole in every person that nothing but God can fill. Well, there's a corollary to that that's even greater. There is a space in God's heart that no one but you can fill. If you've ever visited the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., you have been, you no doubt were struck by its simplicity. Etched into that black granite wall are the names of 53,156 American patriots who gave their lives in Vietnam. And for three Vietnam vets, a visit to that wall is especially poignant because their names are etched there. Because of data coding errors, these three men were listed as killed in action, and their names are on the wall, and yet they stand there alive. Well, every Christian ought to be able to relate to those three Vietnam vets because our names are written on the cross of Christ. Each of us, in a real sense, has died with Christ and has, been, has received new birth through His resurrected power. Now, if you believe Jesus did all that for you, that He died for your sins, you can't help but be grateful. And so you'll naturally want the risen Christ Spirit to be the leader in your life and when you extend that invitation, that's what it means to call Jesus Lord, Supreme Commander. And at the moment you extend that invitation to the risen Christ, to be Savior and Lord for you, you place yourself in the bullseye of God's grace. And God is so faithful. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. And St. Paul echoed that affirmation when he said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He didn't say you'll be saved if you do enough good works. He didn't say you'll be saved if you attend church often enough. No, no, no. Simply by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we are saved. And friends, that's the good news. When God saves you, He gives you two gifts. The first is forgiveness of all sin. And then there's a bonus gift. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart and mind. And day by day, week by week, year by year, makes a new person out of you. The Holy Spirit gives us an assurance that we are saved and are adopted children of God. The Holy Spirit provides power and wisdom for victorious living. The Holy Spirit leads us deeper into the truth of Christ. And as icing on the cake, the Holy Spirit plants a little bit of heaven in our souls in the form of inner peace and abiding joy. Don't we have a great, great God? In verse 38, 
St. Peter urges all believers to be baptized. Now, baptism is the public way of declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. Baptism is not the same as being saved. Remember, there was a thief who died on a cross beside Jesus, and he went to heaven, I guarantee you, but he was not baptized. The late great Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers used to say, you could go under the waters of baptism so many times that the tadpoles know your social security number <laughs> and still not get to heaven. Baptism does not save us. Baptism is the first step to take after we receive the gift of salvation. Baptism of an infant declares that church, God and the church, are staking a claim on this child. And we're going to help that child grow until the day when he or she can make their own profession of faith. <clears throat> Baptism of a youth or adult is the proper step to take after receiving the gift of salvation. Through baptism, we are further bonded into Christ. We are grafted further into Christ. We become part of the worldwide church family, and we advertise to the world that Jesus is Lord for us. Then in verse 40, St. Peter prefaces his altar call with this plea, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, folks, do you suppose that the that that audience of the first century was more corrupt than our generation. I doubt it. The people of the first and the 21st centuries have one thing in common. <clears throat> they tend to focus on this world rather than on eternity. You know the modern truism that's heard often in America. You only go around once in life so grab for all the gusto you can. People of the first century believe that too. And you know this proverb from American capitalism. The winner is the person who dies with the most stuff. People of the first century believe that too. But you know, even if a person lives to be 100 years old, that long lifespan is nothing but the snapping of the fingers compared to the length of eternity. Most American secularists are not sure that there is any life after death. But if there is, they figure that everybody's going to go to some good place where they just float around like, a, like angels. That is a popular lie in our culture. And it blinds people to the truth about eternal life. American secularists use a whole lot of four-letter words most of them obscene. Ah, but there's one four-letter word they are deathly afraid of. H-E-L-L. -L. They never discuss that concept seriously. They only use that word as an expletive. They tell their enemies to go there. Now, Jesus talked a whole lot about heaven and hell. In that most famous verse in our entire Bible, John 3, 16, God said, Jesus said, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place 
for you. Jesus also talked a lot about hell. Hell is simply separation from God. We can get a taste of hell here on earth. Ah, but hell in all its horrible fullness will be experienced on the other side of death. Most of the statements about hell in the New Testament come from Jesus. For example, Jesus said, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. End of quote. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And God did everything possible to save everybody from going to hell, including sending his son to die on a cross for their sins. He did everything possible except one thing. He would not take away our right to say no. Because had he done that, we would be nothing more than puppets rather than made in the image of God. If we reject or ignore his offer of salvation, God will allow our choice to stand for all eternity, and that will be hell. The late Queen Mother of Great Britain, mother of Queen Elizabeth, attended a worship service years ago in, in the great St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and uh, the priest brought a message in that service about eternal life. But the Queen Mother, who is a very attentive listener, discerned that he was being more diplomatic rather than candid. In other words, he was beating around the bush. So a few days later, the Queen Mother invited him to Buckingham Palace for a conversation. And she asked him a very simple question. She said, Sir, is it really true that there is an eternal place called hell? And the priest said, Your Highness, the Bible says it is, and the articles of religion of the Church of England say it is. And the Queen Mother responded, Then why in God's name don't you say so? And the priest had no answer. But I'm going to answer the Queen Mother's question. Why? Why is there so little talk about heaven and hell? And it's this, we clergy, we, un, we imperfect people like you, we would rather please you than disturb you. But sometimes the truth is disturbing. And it is our duty before God Almighty to tell you the truth, whether it pleases you or disturbs you. And here's the truth. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. But you can't stay here. <laughs> Where do you stand today? Are you just a decent person who hopes that God will grate on the curve and let you slide on in? Do you pay lip service to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but deep in your heart you know there's something or someone else really in first place in your life? When we face God on the day of final judgment, it will not help one iota to say, Lord, I was a decent person. I was way more decent than most folks. Won't help a bit. 
The only people who will make it home to heaven will be those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Two Sundays ago, September 1, uh, I preached in my former church in Memphis, Tennessee. And at the close of my message, I issued a challenge to the folks. I said, folks, if you will look in your personal Bible, you will notice that there are a couple of blank pages either in the front or the back. I challenge you to find one of those blank pages and write down today these words. Today, I repent of my sin and make or renew my commitment to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And then I want you to sign it and date it. And I said to them, one of these days you're going to die, and somebody in your family will inherit your personal Bible, and they will leaf through it, perhaps in preparation for your funeral. And they're going to see what you wrote today. And I promise you, they will be grateful for it and inspired by it. In that congregation two weeks ago was my friend Herb, a retired physician. Uh, Herb and I played golf together occasionally. And as Duke graduates, we often talked about Coach K and the prospects for his basketball team. Herb got in touch with me a day or two after September 1. He texted me and said, Brother Bill, give me the exact words now that I should write in my Bible because I want to do that today. And so I responded with a text about what to write. A week ago, Herb's son called me and he said, Brother Bill, yesterday Dad went out for his usual morning walk. He came back to the house, sat down in his lazy boy chair, had a massive heart attack, and died. His funeral was yesterday. And I know for sure that the preacher in that funeral told that congregation about the last words that Herb wrote in his Bible. And Herb's son told me what a blessing that statement of faith had meant to their entire family. None of us knows how much time we have on this earth before we leave to meet, meet our Maker. The only absolutely necessary preparation to make is this simple faith statement. I repent of my sin and make or renew my personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, in a few moments, we're going to sing a concluding hymn. And during the singing of that hymn, I am declaring this altar holy ground and wide open. And I'm going to invite you, if you feel led to make or renew that commitment to Christ, I'm going to invite you to come down here and stand or kneel for a few moments. And you can use the affirmation printed in your bulletin. I repent of my sin and claim Jesus Christ by faith as my Savior and Lord. That's all that is required to receive God's salvation. And if you are a youth or an adult and have never been baptized, my goodness, I would love to baptize you this morning. Uh, and if that's your desire, just come down to this end of the altar and you remain there after the singing of the hymn, and I would, I would be so delighted uh, to baptize you. Uh,
Now, congregation, after we finish singing the hymn, you may be seated, but the organist will continue to play as long as there are people coming to the altar. So, folks in the balcony, there'll be plenty of time for you to come on down and go on back. Let us stand now and sing, and I invite you to come. <laughs> 